Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Today, I am joined by psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, personal empowerment and transformation coach, CEO, author, and speaker, Emmy Brunner. Despite this formidable list of accomplishments and a successful career spanning over 20 years, Emmy entered her 20s decade in a state of crisis. Her early 20s were spent trying to navigate the complexities of adulthood, attempting to get her foot in the door of what was at the time a very white male-centric profession. Emmy was also battling with an eating disorder, anxiety, and self-harm behaviours. These coping mechanisms were a means to an end and she now realizes that her 20s were essentially a path to finding rock bottom before discovering the fork in the road to take her to where she needed to be a state of acceptance and compassion for herself throughout the decade she suffered through toxic and abusive relationships including getting married to the wrong person and several other personal battles she fought to overcome Halfway through her 20s in 2005, Emmy also founded the Recover Clinic, which has gone on to become Europe's leading outpatient service, treating sufferers of trauma, depression, body dysmorphia, anxiety, eating disorders, and addiction. Her dedication to helping others overcome tenuous battles helped Emmy in her own self-discovery, and she is an advocate of living a life fueled by compassion and happiness over fear. Her first book, released earlier this year, Find Your True Voice, has helped many to identify and overcome unsolved trauma negatively impacting their mental health. Emmy's holistic approach to treatments and dedication to her practice over the years has helped thousands of people across the UK and beyond in their pursuit for happier and more fulfilled lives. In her words, recovery is about rediscovering who you are beneath the layers of shame, shoulds and shouldn'ts that have been imposed on you. Emmy, it's an honour to have you on the podcast today. Welcome to 20 Not Something. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a bit embarrassing sitting through that kind of fire. I'm like, who is this person? <laughs> no, thank you. And I really wanted I wanted to put that quote in um, at the end because I speak a lot about the word should. Um, we love it on this podcast and how it's so loaded with mm-hmm. you know expectations. So yeah, thank thank you mm. for saying it and for being here. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. Um, so I'll kick things off with the same question I ask everyone, and that is when you were looking into your 20s decade, what was the one thing that you wanted the most? Oh, I think I just wanted a bit of stability. I think everything in my world then was just so crazy, um, including me, like everything was a bit crazy. And I just wanted a bit of stability and consistency and that's what I was really lacking Mm. um in my life and had been lacking forever I think um and so I spent my 20s kind of looking in all the wrong places um looking outside of myself I guess for for that grounding um and never really finding it because it is such a turbulent time though you're right and it's a time of major transition so I guess it is only natural to feel that way but yeah as you said maybe seeking out um resolutions in other people is is quite a damaging way to I I just think there's so much pressure on you at that point you know and you're trying to figure out who you are you're trying to navigate that transition from being a teen to being an adult you're potentially having to make really big decisions about 
your career and what path that takes or you know further academic commitments and it's just a lot to deal with at a point where you don't really necessarily know yourself very well Mm. um and you're also maybe having some questionable coping tools becoming established at that point certainly in my case like my coping strategies were just a set of very destructive tools that made it very difficult for me to have a high level of functioning really Mm. um and so I think now retrospectively looking back I I just feel like there's just that pressure just felt so unnecessary and so uh, almost ridiculous really to put that kind of pressure on a young person Mm. um to make those kind of committed life choices at a point where you're you're just not able to it's kind of crazy that we put that pressure on young people now it's certainly not something I would do with my own kids yeah it's interesting you say that because I think I was listening to it one of uh, a podcast that you were on the other day and you were talking about how especially as a young person we make decisions based on fear um Mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of your experiences of of that in your 20s as well I think I was just so scared of being seen um because fundamentally didn't like who I was so I spent a lot of time trying to hide but you're also trying to achieve things and you're trying to make a life for yourself so it's quite difficult to do that and remain invisible so you're in this kind of torturous uh, path of trying to hide and also trying to be seen which is kind of excruciating um and that was my experience really just trying to avoid being rejected I guess by people not wanting to people to figure out who I really was and to not like it and then withdraw and that I, so I found it quite painful really and then I think from for me I, I did what I think everybody does we seek out people and experiences that reaffirm our core beliefs about ourselves very much unconsciously at that point so every relationship was destined to end in a way that would confirm my worst beliefs about myself Mm. um, or every job that I had um, would play out in very similar ways. Um, I experienced, particularly working in mental health at a really young age, which I did, I experienced a lot of discrimination and just kind of casual sexism in the workplace as well. And so not some not so casual sexism as well, but just trying to establish myself um, mm. as a woman uh, in a uh, in a period where I felt so uncertain about my own voice and trying to be seen and heard and not being sure what boundaries were okay and what weren't were okay it was it was a tricky time. Mm. I wanted to talk to you about that actually because um, yeah you mentioned that you you know you were going into a profession which was extremely white male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, that pursuit of that career that you wanted, did did that environment encourage you or did it deter you? And what sort of sexism did you experience? I think I just expected to be um, treated uh, in that way as a woman because of my early child experiences of experiencing trauma and having some very negative experiences with men. So I think I expected a lot of that from the men that I worked alongside but yeah, nothing kind of fully prepared me for those things. Even when I was doing my clinical training, I remember I worked at a rehab and uh, my boss at the time when I came into the meeting said, everyone, I just want you to have a look and see how um, ugly Emmy looks today. 
she looks isn't and he was being like he was trying to be funny like he thought I look really attractive and he did this in front of like a meeting of like 30 people I was just so embarrassed and so mortified and and I was 20 however old I didn't know how to handle it and I didn't know how to respond and this was not just an adult this was my boss at my workplace um and uh, it was a really challenging thing to to navigate. That was just one thing that I remember back from from that time. Mm. Um, and I think no, it really put me off. And I withdrew a lot. And I set up my own clinical practice. That's one of the reasons I have uh, a facility today that is only run by women because it wanted to feel as safe for me as it possibly could. And I still don't hire any men at all. Really. Um, yeah um, yeah. it's quite cool to be honest it's pretty nice um it's a really safe chilled out vibe um and we have a real laugh as well it's lovely um but part of that is because it felt really important for me to create an environment that not just I felt super safe with but everybody that came into the clinic felt super safe with as well because Mm. so many of our clients have experienced trauma sexual trauma um and the reality is that being around men trying to recover from that can be really difficult and really triggering. Um, kind of leaving my 20s, I've come to learn that there are good guys out there. And it's not just all about the bad guys. But that certainly was a lot of my early experience. And working mm. in that environment did cause me to kind of withdraw and stop working in um, spaces with other mm. other men basically mm-hmm. um but it was one of the best things that I ever did for sure yeah and I mean it was your mid-20s wasn't it 2005 when you sort of started the practice I'm just curious because that is a that's a huge business venture for you know someone at such a young age who maybe didn't really know what they wanted so was that something that came about as a result of need feeling like there was a change needed or were you excited was it fearful what was that sort of decision like do you know what, Emma? I hadn't got the faintest clue what I was getting myself into at that point. So if you'd have said to me now, like, you're going to build and run the biggest outpatient program in Europe, I would have just thought you were absolutely bananas. And um, I just start, set up a private practice because it was easier. Um, I had a sense clinically of how I wanted to work. I really believed in treating people rather than a disease. And I think what what started as kind of intuition then has evolved into a more considered clinical approach. Mm. So my gut then was that the treatment wasn't working for a lot of people. Um, There was a high levels of relapse within the communities I was working with. Um, And it seemed to me there was something missing And so when I started the practice, it was very much about trying to connect with people, trying to create an environment that felt safe and holding. And that's what I did in my clinical practice, which initially started with me. And within months, I'd recruited other people to work alongside me and it just grew and grew and grew um, until it became what it is today. Um, And I I really think that part of what's made it so successful has been that grounding in helping people figure out who they are and what their coping tools are what's the story they tell themselves about who they are and what they're capable of um and the kind of pathologizing of people's behaviors is is not so important or relevant to me it feels um really reductive 
to describe people's coping strategies as an anxiety disorder or depression. You know, these are responses to trauma that people struggle to cope with, that I struggled to cope with. Yeah. So I I have a deep empathy for people and I think that's really helped. For sure. And that comes across so vividly, especially in the book as well. And, you know, right at the beginning when you were at the Karen Foundation and, and the woman was speaking to you about how she knew that you'd been through things purely because that's that's the field that you're in. And, and mm-hmm. that empathy that you have must be incredibly tough to be able to detach from those issues. And I just wanted to ask you, I'm, I'm, I don't want this to be um, triggering for you, but one thing that... Um, has come up a lot in my experience of speaking to people in this decade is eating disorders and I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about how you navigated um you know getting through that and and how we can help people who struggle with it now yeah so yeah this might be triggering for me but thank you for saying that the the um I wrote the book so that I could help people figure this out. That's exactly why I did it, because mental health treatment is such a privilege. Eating disorders treatment is so difficult to get, and it's so often led by weight and behaviour stabilisation. It's not really about figuring out who a person is, why they've established this as a coping strategy unconsciously. It's not a decision we make. It's something that evolves over time. Um, but when you start to empower people with a sense of why, um, then they learn to change things. And that's what happened to me. That's what's happened to every single person that I've ever worked with. We start to gain insight into what's motivated those behaviours. We learn other ways of coping. And then the eating disorder behaviours become redundant. They become no longer necessary. Um, and when you learn to care about yourself in a different way, you're not motivated to harm yourself in the same way certainly I wasn't over a period of time recovering from an eating disorder it was a very easy behavior for me to adopt because I didn't care about myself so it didn't matter to me that I hurt myself Um, and so I think I remember that so keenly what that felt like so when people are struggling with eating disorders I just know so much I just remember so well how that felt um but it, we don't recover from eating disorders with meal plans and weight gain goals. We recover from a kind of a deeper sense of healing that happens when you really feel seen and heard by a person. Mm, yeah, for sure. I remember reading, um, I think it was Dolly Alderson's book, Everything I Know About Love. She talks about eating disorders and how it feels like the one thing in our lives that we can control um, mm-hmm. which I found really interesting. And I think that is a huge thing, particularly in this decade. It's that feeling that we need to be in control of not only our future, but the present as well. And, you know, that is one thing that I know certainly I'm guilty of it. I notice when I feel like I'm not in control of my life, my eating habits become increasingly worse um, mm. in terms of, the, you know, trying to fixate mm. on things like that. Um, yeah it's a it's a strategy for coping you know it's when I feel out of control this is something I can do that gives me some ease mm-hmm. um and I think when we we don't recognize what role the eating disorder is playing in a person's life it's playing it's serving a purpose and that just might not be nice it might be destructive but it is serving a purpose and you can't take it away with some from somebody without giving them an alternative and that's why just sort of white knuckling it with recovery from those things just doesn't work. 
you have to kind of get a more intuitive sense of yourself and what your needs are in order to have any sort of sustained healing from those behaviors sure do you recall that time being a really slow process because when i've read things that you said it's almost like you had an aha moment maybe Mm. in your mid-20s where you wanted that change so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that was was it that straightforward for you I think it's like a series of different those aha moments. So that moment at the Karen Foundation was so uncomfortable for me. I can't even tell you, you know, uh, this sweet American woman sitting me down and being kind to me and feeling a bit seen was so awful in many ways because I felt so exposed and I just had not felt that way. But I realized that there was great comfort in being seen as well. So it was a really powerful experience for me, which is why I opened the book with it, because I just remember that feeling of I don't want to be seen, but I'm so lonely and I need somebody to to recognize or to help me in some way. But I can't ask for help and I don't know who I want help from. And you just get trapped in this space. Um, And so for this stranger to just extend an act of kindness was just exactly what I needed in that moment. And I feel like throughout my 20s, it was a series of of those things. I remember having an argument with a boyfriend, hideous boyfriend I had, who was really mean to me. And uh, there was just a moment where I went, I... I shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be happening. I shouldn't be in this moment. And that was a little aha moment. Nothing immediately changed. I carried on. I'm not even sure how long we dated for after that, probably a good while. Um, but it was just those little windows. They feel like, honestly, to me, like some sort of spiritual intervention where you kind of wake up in your life and you have this moment of present consciousness and go, mm. okay what what's going on and that might be in a crisis in like those moments but it was in other ways too for me to go don't just slip through life don't do what everyone thinks you're gonna do don't just um make everyone else comfortable what would you do if you were brave what would you do if you weren't afraid of anything and they're questions that I, I still ask myself those questions now like if the world's the limit the sky's the limit and that's the expression then what would you do next? What, what are you going to do? And if you start to live life like that, everything starts to feel so much more exciting and interesting. And you can still pay your due diligence. You can still take responsibility and, and make kind of more sensible decisions. It doesn't mean going about things being completely cavalier. It's, it's different. It's about a bravery that you're able to draw on from within. And that, that makes life something so inspiring that it's yeah you kind of don't want to turn back from that when you go down that route and lots of people don't live like that often doesn't occur to people to live like that yeah it's so tricky as well when you're trying to juggle so many things at once and I mean you said just then about relationships and and I think that's something which is so difficult to navigate because we just don't really know what we want. And as you said, like right at the start, you know, you seek out the people who you feel like you deserve. I feel like I'm going to quote J.K. Rowling now or something. Is it Albus Dumbledore? He says, um, we accept the love we think we deserve. And it's so true because mm. that that's what we seek out. And um, I mean, for you, what was dating in your 20s like? And do you have any regrets about that? Oh, I, do you know what? I really try not to because so many of those people that I was in relationship with have become really great teachers 
for me of lessons that were so important Mm -hmm. and I don't know had it not been so bleak I don't know that I would have been inspired to fight for so much more um my fear when I was much younger was that I would settle for something that was totally uninspiring and safe and boring I couldn't bear the idea of being bored in life or waking up in my 40s being married to someone that I just kind of had lukewarm feelings for and had three kids and just a life that I was totally just meh about that was a big fear for me so I kind of went the other way and dated people who were really inappropriate and essentially it was about them being unkind to me more than being inappropriate but um no I try really hard not to have regrets about those things because I recognize how important they've been in shaping who I am and I think I probably was meant to go through those experiences like genuinely I wouldn't want to relive them in a million years but I do realize that they change things in me that today I'm probably very very grateful for Mm, for sure yeah it's just a bit of a tough ride at point (laughs) 100% I mean dating in general is although when you were saying that reminded me of um I think it was something that you said on your Instagram about um, learning to love yourself as if you're introducing yourself as your best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing for me that I realized about relationships and dating actually particularly is that the more that you put yourself in those situations where it's like a first date with someone, you are essentially selling yourself. And it kind of made me realize how interesting cool and funny I am when I just kept selling this version of myself that I didn't really believe I was just trying to like act and maybe that's a really bad way to go about it but do you know what I mean it's sort of just I do know what you mean but do you know what as much as I had those kind of uh those negative experiences I had a real laugh dating my 20s because I didn't really care so uh, if somebody asked me out I wouldn't think about how much I fancied them or how attractive they were or what they were doing for their job I just used to go along because I'd think I'm going to come out of this either with a, a nice night or a fun story and I've got some great stories of guys that I went on dates with and really fondly I think of those experiences and I'm really glad I did that I was very brave with those things mm. um and that was a real asset to me. I went out with lots of interesting people and had some really fun nights out with some nice people as well. Um, and I think quite often, so many of my girlfriends at the time would only date if they saw immediate potential for a serious relationship. Um, and for me, it was about, well, you you just go along for the ride, for the mm. experience of it. And that was brilliant. Those guys, those dates that I went on, like just mad, crazy experiences were just brilliant. You know, they were so fun. I went out with rock stars. I went out with investment bankers. I went out with farmers. I went out with all kind of walks. And it was always a laugh, always. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. (laughs) We're not so good at dating here. We should do better with that. What in the in the UK or yeah in the UK and the U because I went to I studied in the US and they're big on dating so you go on dates a lot mm. um, and here we're a little bit more conservative about it and it's a shame because it's fun it's so true but also just like going up to someone and asking them out like it just doesn't yeah. happen anymore yeah people are so I asked afraid my husband out, did you oh my yeah. gosh tell that story <laughs> so we met at, um, 
uh, it's a bit it's, it's going to sound like a bit of a wanky story can I can I swear on here yeah yeah that's all right okay yeah. it's it's going to sound a bit wanky because we were at the after show at the grouch show I mean you couldn't get more <laughs> than that. and um and my sister introduced me to him and I just thought he was gorgeous and so we had a little boogie and I was like oh do you want to go out for a drink that was it yeah, I love that. And he was I like, "Now." That. I'm like, "No, not now. Later, <laughs> on another da- time. I'll give you my number." Yeah, I love that. It's so confident, and I've I literally have this on my bucket list to do. Is like, I just want to go up to someone and be like, "You look nice. Let's yeah. go on a date." Maybe a bit more vocab than that, but yeah, but I'm, I'm too afraid of it. it. Yeah. Why? I don't know. Like rejection, isn't it? It's the ultimate fear. I guess so. But I think partly when you're casual, but you pick up on a a vibe already, don't you? You don't go Mm. up to a complete stranger, you know, in your shopping aisle in Sainsbury's (laughs) and ask them out. (laughs) Or maybe you do, but, you know, we're already dancing. So I'm already, this is is cool, right? This is a vibe. I'm in here, right? So, yeah, yeah, you're picking up on signals. So then I'm like, well, why not? why not yeah fair. maybe i'll maybe i'll give it a go <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah another thing i wanted to mention in um find your true voice you speak about the unwell voice and one thing that really intrigues me about you know our, the human mind is why we always naturally turn to those negative thoughts and comments about ourselves when we're so like i'm such a i'm such a nice person but you know what i mean like if i if i was speaking to my friend i would never ever ever say half of the horrible things i say to myself um and so i'm just curious to ask you as a professional why do we always turn to those negative thoughts immediately i think two things are true about this not everybody does that's key not everybody has a a negative internal narrative people can be pretty sweet to themselves right that's for sure (laughs) yeah but um for those of us that do i think we we internalize some very negative core beliefs as we're growing up about ourselves and so when things play out that kind of unwell voice uses those experiences as evidence of those truths that we hold about ourselves that are damaging to us so for example for me I used to one of my negative core beliefs and there were many was that I wasn't smart and I was really stupid and so if I failed at something or if something didn't go right or I said something stupid which we all do then it would internally confirm all of those thoughts that I had about myself that I wasn't smart um, and so it sort kind of provided evidence to confirm your worst mm. fears about yourself. So it's thinking about what are my core beliefs about myself and how are they limiting me um, or, you know, how are they serving me? Because some of the core beliefs we have about ourselves can be nice. Mm. But generally, they're not, they don't belong to us. They've been inherited from other people that have raised us or been said to us or we've we've come up with them as a result of an experience we've maybe lived through for sure and it all comes back to narratives i guess doesn't it like the narrative we tell ourselves about who we are um i've definitely noticed that like i've been raised my mum bless her she's always like she's a worrier and she always used to say to me like oh emma you're a worrier your nana's a worrier your great nana's a worrier we're all worriers and so i lived my life like with this sort of narrative of like i'm a worrier i I worry about everything 
And so even when there's nothing to worry about, I'm like, okay, but what am I worrying about? And I realized when I went through therapy, it was like, someone hit the my, my coach just sort of questioned it and was like okay but why why are you a warrior and as soon as I asked that I was like oh actually yeah maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm not yeah it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy doesn't it because we say something about ourselves and then it becomes true and you know we experience life like it's something that happens to us and we don't realize that we're playing such a huge role in it mm. you know our realities are a manifestation of what we believe about ourselves yeah which is mad because I always think like if I okay so every morning if I wake up and I tell myself I'm brilliant over you know four years what is that gonna do what's that gonna shift yeah it's nice yeah so often if you've spent yeah it's amazing imagine what you're capable of you know we can manifest whatever we want it's just a question of how much we can believe in it you know and for so many of us it's easier to believe in small victories than it is in the bigger things but it's it's all just stuff if you believe it it's easy to to achieve when people have achieved great things it's not that they're any smarter than anybody else in some cases that could be true but often it's just they believed that they could do something so they did Mm. Mm. when people ask me about why I felt like I could set up a big clinic it didn't occur to me that I couldn't I just did do that it wasn't Mm. a decision to go I'm going to go ahead and do this I just did it Mm. and so you if you're being held back by negative core beliefs then it's really worth looking at what they are and unpicking them. Mm. Wrapping back to what we were speaking about earlier about about the clinic and and making decisions based on fear. Do you think that at the time that was a decision based on fear or based on um, like excitement and joy? Well, <clears throat> that's a really good question. I think probably primarily it was uh, partly based on fear because I think I was keen to create something stable for me and the easiest way to do that was to stop allowing other people to be in control of aspects of my life so professionally rather than having to sit in a room where a man behaved in that way towards me I created an environment where I didn't have to be exposed to that anymore Mm. Um, and so part of it was based around fear but based around seeking a, a sense of security and stability and that's partly why I did it I became in charge of what happened I became in charge and in control of a lot of different aspects of my life that people don't have when they work for other people. Mm. And I think that massively appealed to me. Mm. I think that's true for a lot of entrepreneurs. I think a lot of us have had different traumas and things and it feels safer for us to be in control. Um, sure. And that's partly what motivates us to do what we do. Yeah. Makes sense though, doesn't it? You know, that's that's how we've been taught, like you should work for someone else or you You'll go. You'll work your way up to making your own decisions. Yeah. You can't just go out into the world and and do it. But I think you know, as as you've done, and you know, so many people are doing now. It's becoming a lot more prevalent, probably mm. because of of that exact thing of the control. Yeah, and I think it's are. a really archaic way of working that our parents, grandparents had that. You know, you went and you got a job and you worked and that's how you made your money and that's how you made a life for yourself. And life is different now. We're, mm. we're, we are freer to be able to pursue things 
um, with freedom without the shackles of those kind of social constructs that were there, you know, generations ago. Thanks, Emmy. We're going to go on to play Millennial Minesweeper now. Um, okay. So this is just a fun quotes game at the end. I've just got three quotes and um, I'll read them out. Um, and you've just got to give your opinion on them, whether you agree with them or not. Um, so our first one actually ties into what we were just talking about slightly. So I'll see what you think of it. Um, but it's none of the people who are racking up amazing success stories and creating cool stuff are doing it just by working more hours than you. And they're not smarter than you either. They're succeeding by doing hard work. And that's by Seth Godin on what you're going to do with that duck. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm. They're just doing hard work. I don't know if I do necessarily agree with that. I think the first part of the statement I did in so much as I, I think anybody can be successful. It's just about a mindset thing. But there's a bit of a myth there that you have to work hard to do it as well. It's something I really believed and I've challenged a lot over the course of my career. I work smart now and I still do work hard. I'm very committed, mm. but I don't consider working long hours and I certainly don't work in the evenings or weekends. <laughs> Um, so it depends how you're framing hard work I guess this is the issue I have with it I love Seth Godin and obviously he's an incredibly Mm. successful podcaster a very interesting guy but that phrase just work harder I don't think anybody knows what it means and it doesn't really have a definition either because you know we're told hard work pays off but what, Mm. what what is that there's an expression, though, you, you're a busy fool. And that is somebody who works very, very hard and doesn't get anywhere. So mm. it's not about working hard necessarily. It's about working really smart. So knowing where to put your attention and focus. For me, as an entrepreneur, I have different ideas firing off constantly. And it's been a real discipline to know where to focus my attention on and to develop an, uh, any, an idea as one goes into the next and so on and have the focus to be able to do that has been challenging um and that for me is working hard so it it is you're so right it's about how you frame those things Mm. and what they really mean to you for sure cool so our second one is oh i love this quote failure is the condiment that gives success its flavor oh i mean that's quite nice yeah I I guess that's probably true I think for me like all of my failures have been such valuable lessons like my goodness um but certainly in a broader sense in life I'm so grateful and so humble for my life and the the things that I have like personally and professionally because I've known those other darker moments Mm -hmm. and those failings and those things that haven't worked out um but ultimately you begin to realize I think the older I get this is more and more true is that you don't need to control everything it's almost futile to think that you can and that actually if you're able to let go and enjoy the ride then everything's going to evolve as it's meant to be anyway Mm. so you just need to go along and enjoy it yeah, I need to write that on my ceiling and read it every morning because I literally <laughs> obsess over things that are just so not even worth it. And then like yeah. it's exhausting and you go around in that circle, don't you? Um, it's such a relief to let go, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that you've become better equipped at handling failure the older that you've got and the more failures that you've 
experienced? Uh, yes, I think I've definitely got used to it <laughs> for a start. Um, yeah, definitely. And also, I think when things don't work out now, I don't necessarily see it as a kind of a win or a loss mm. scenario. I trust much more in a process of things evolving in a certain way. So I don't look at it in such a black and white way in the way I would have done. Certainly in my twenties, it was about, you know, I always used to quote this Bruce Springsteen quote, which is there are winners and losers and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that line. Mm. I never forgot it. And I was just so determined not to be on the wrong side of that line. And, things have changed so much and now I recognize so much value in things that didn't work out mm. um because they weren't meant to and when I've tried to control everything that's when I'm much more likely to force something ahead that doesn't quite feel right or isn't working out or isn't mm-hmm. flowing right and when I listen and pay attention to the energy around an idea or anything a relationship when it flows you don't need to control it very much it just kind of works out mm. That's what I try and go with now. Yeah, good, good words to live by. Um, Mm. And our our final one is this is just a meme I saw on Instagram, but I thought it was funny. Um, I'm at that awkward age where half of my friends are getting married and the other half are too drunk to find their phones. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought it just defines my 20s, basically. (laughs) God, that's so true, isn't it? Do you know what, though? I remember being in my 20s. No, hang on, being in my 30s and seeing people from my 20s who already looked like they were in their 40s. You know, those people that were just always destined to be older, always. And they were going to get married young and they were going to settle down and they were going to have those lives. And then there was us and we were messy and we did crazy things and, you know, we got tattoos we shouldn't have got and we made terrible mistakes and whatever. And... I don't know. I kind of, I like being part of this gang. It feels mm. a bit more vibrant and it certainly meant that I've not done what I mostly feared, which was to be a bored suburban housewife somewhere. <laughs> Thank God. For sure. For sure. And I think it's so important to recognize as well that like everyone doing anything like the, 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 the purpose of this podcast is like, doing something in your 20s can be doing anything that you want mm-hmm. like that's not to say that going out and getting drunk all the time is is really bad I mean it might be for your liver but if you want to do it then go and do it and simultaneously if you want to get married at 23 and have a baby like or have or no get married and have a baby like just do it I don't think that do you know what I th- Emma I think it's about honoring your truth Mm. and for us to kind of project whatever that should look like onto another person is it's pointless it's Mm. about you and your journey you know some of my girlfriends did go off and become suburban housewives and are incredibly happy and that's amazing it's just about honoring your truth and and creating a life for yourself that is really aligned with what you believe is right for you and your values and being Mm. fluid around that as well not being too kind of defensive around that what that looks like being going about things with an open heart I just feel like is is the best way to be it's how I try to be now still sure yeah yeah and I get it would just be so much easier if we didn't all compare ourselves continuously but that's a whole nother kettle of fish so yeah yeah 
It is. I think it's just pointless, isn't it? Because you're just you're projecting things onto other people. We never really know what's going on with other people's stories. But I think it distracts you from your own journey. Mm. You know, when we're focused on what we're doing and keeping your head down and getting on with what makes you happy, what motivates you, what brings joy in your life, then it, it doesn't matter what somebody you went to school with is doing or somebody that you went to university is doing. It becomes irrelevant. Because mm-hmm. it's all about you, and that's nice mm, for sure. Oh, Emmy, thank you so much for coming on the You're podcast. So, so it's been so lovely. I feel like I've had a therapy session. I didn't even pay for it. Welcome, <laughs> <laughs> it's such a pleasure. Good, I'm glad. Um, and where can people find your book and you as well? So you can find. Um, so if you. If you are somebody struggling with mental health issues and you want advice or guidance around that, then you can look at the clinic, which is called the recoverclinic.co.uk. You can find me on Instagram, which is Emmy Brunner Official. You can buy the book in all good bookstores and Amazon. Um, and if you're in the US or Canada, you can get it at Blackwell's. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. If you enjoyed this episode, then hit subscribe to be the first to get notified of new episodes dropping every Wednesday. A big shout out to our composer and producer, Pete Haff, and a huge thank you to you guys at home for listening. Feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or reach out on Instagram at 20 not something. It's lovely hearing your thoughts on the episode and who you guys are keen to hear from in future. With that in mind, we'll be back next week with another brilliant guest. So stay tuned. <laughs>